I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. The Church of England is facing a grave constitutional crisis as a result of last week's failure to allow women bishops. Church leaders are urging a suspension of the rules to allow a second vote as members of Parliament say they'll move to force the Church to abide by civil anti-discrimination laws. In Poland, the Constitutional Tribunal has said it's against that country's law to allow animals to have their throats cut and bleed to death without first being stunned. Poland has small Muslim and Jewish communities who use such methods. Here in Ireland, in the wake of the tragic death of Savita Halapanavar in Galway, the debate on abortion legislation continues in the Irithus and in the media. Savita's husband, Pravin, alleges that a member of the hospital staff told his wife when she asked for a termination of her pregnancy that this was a Catholic country. It's not our aim tonight to discuss the accuracy of that claim, but as we're often told that Ireland is a pluralist democracy, we've invited two people of the Hindu faith to find out what they believe about abortion and perhaps sexuality in general. We're joined by a Hindu monk, Swami Purnananda, and a widow, mother and grandmother, Asha Chawla, who was born and raised in India. Swami, if we can come to you first, what does Hinduism teach about abortion? Firstly, we don't think that this is the only life. Life for us is a continuum, like a continuous stream, and the individual person is essentially spirit. And so the whole purpose of life is this expression of this divinity from within. Now, anything that delays that and inhibits that will inherently be immoral. So when a fetus arrives, we understand that The fetus is a combination, naturally, of the seed and the egg. But all the fundamental, what we call mahabhutas, that's fundamental elements of life, are incorporated in that. That's the material side. But then the spiritual side is that the accumulation of that soul's experience all the way back, and this is consistent with modern evolution. So when we look at that, uh, we'll find that there's an inherent spirit entity which is there, It's not that the fetus becomes a person, it's that a fetus is a person. From a moral point of view, the thing that gives the greatest strength uh, to oneself and to others, social, family, domestic, is the, the greatest good and the highest morality. And so the central virtue that embodies this is called ahimsa, which means non injury, whose positive aspect is love. But it's a very high ideal. And Hinduism is not an absolute. And so it adapts in a practical way to all the circumstances around it. And the Hindu scriptures always is in favor of preservation of life for the mother because the mother is more developed. There's a karma, karma law which operates. We ourselves are independently responsible for our own destiny. So what we are now is what we have been, accumulation of what we have have been right now. Okay, we'll come back to you in a second. Can I just ask you, uh, what is the position in law in India? Asha. The law is liberal from the abortion point of view. And religiously, abortions, conception are never discussed very openly. India runs on many wheels. 
and it has a lot of inner social complications. Also, India is overpopulated. Abortion or having a child or not having a child, they are very personal matters and directly concerned with the families within. And then immediately, if there's a medical need, the doctor. And the doctor is supposed to ethically see that what he can save. Coming back to you, Swami, what about Hindu doctors? Do they have a problem then? You see, the 1971 legislation in India was founded, one of the legs of its foundation would be in the Hindu moral perspective. And so the current law exactly reflects the Hindu moral position. Um, Women in physical or mental uh, danger uh, would be uh, a reason for legitimate abortion. Uh, Women facing handicap uh, or malformed uh, child uh, rape, case of rape, already this great, great trauma with a rape victim, incest victim. So the woman and the mother will be the primary concern. You know, there's an ancient uh, medical text. It goes back to about the 6th century BC. So according to the, uh, the Sushruta Samhita medical treatise, it describes the various preliminary steps to be taken to attempt to save both mother and child. If the fetus is alive, one should attempt to remove it from the womb of the mother alive. If it is dead, it may be removed. In case the fetus is alive but cannot be safely delivered, surgical removal is forbidden, for one would harm both mother and offspring. In an irredeemable situation, it is best to cause the miscarriage of the fetus, for no means must be neglected which can prevent the loss of the mother. The mother must therefore be saved as a priority, and an and a woman's life must take precedence in every case. So, so, so again, you know, such horrific forms of violence such as rape and incense and so on and so forth come under this purview also. And the law provides for all of those things that I've mentioned. We want to avoid any delay in a soul's progress towards mm-hmm. freedom. What we don't subscribe to is an idea that a woman says, this is my body, I can do what I like with it. First of all, we don't believe that a woman possesses a body or a man possesses a body. We believe that a body, in the language of the Vedic scriptures, uh, is a, a nine-gated city or eleven-gated city that houses a very precious entity, namely the eternal spirit. Okay. Asha, if I can come to you, there's a further complication in that many of them are what they call gender-selective. Gender-selective has become a recent phenomena since the scanning was possible. Until then, nobody knew. Mm. India is a male-dominated country. In the legislation, it doesn't mean there's any difference, but the all old setups were such that uh, all the domination was from the male sides. The British tried very hard to unite India because it was a very fragmented country. And later on, after the independence, Mahatma Gandhi made it a secular country. Now, we cannot bring in religion as such as an issue. So so the law in India is very straightforward for anybody and everybody. And we are never asked what religion you are, because at that moment of life or death, whatever the question is, it is to save a life, even to kill uh, an ant is a big sin. So when we bring sin and morality and religion and practicality together, 
we are bound to fail somewhere because these are all very strong individual pillars and they all stand on their own. But collectively, you can't mix them. I have lived here for almost 40 years now. It's a small country. It is a very singular kind of a culture, which is very easily understood. India as such cannot be understood easily. It has got so many aspects, caste, cultures. It's a multi-tiered society. And to cater for all kinds of people, there cannot be so many different laws. As it is, abortion is an emotional torture for a woman and it is a physical pain for a woman. And these two things amount to mental torture. So before anybody decides willingly to go through abortion, already there is a lot of stress. At that time, you cannot think of anything other than getting out of that pain and getting back to life. And that is why that pressure I feel, which the Irish constitution has put on the doctors of religion, morality, all those things, they're very hard to keep with a practical situation. In this case, it has sort of the whole issue has blown like a volcano. This only shows that underneath there was some very strong heat. But because it has taken an international outlook, it is being reviewed differently now. Not that these things haven't happened before, but it is only being reviewed now. And the way the Irish people have come out with sympathy, with grief, almost everybody with a tear in their eye to see this girl, that has brought out a human compassion that is universal. So if so many people have felt the, the pain, the sympathy, then there must be something wrong in the law. There has been a catalyst. I think the legislators have to be much more decisive now about this issue. Swami Purnananda and Asha Chawla, thank you both for joining us this evening and explaining it to us from your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. On the 12th of January 1962, a year after the launch of Telefisheren, a new phenomenon hit Irish television screens. It was the first of a series of documentaries made by a team of Catholic priests with the working title Ryark, which can be translated as Vision. This year has seen many celebrations to mark the anniversary of that groundbreaking development, the latest of which you can hear about now. Ryark was an extraordinary phenomenon. Hello, and welcome to Ryark. An astounding project, really, by any standards. It was a crazy idea from the outset. An independent film production unit run by priests. Were they filmmakers more than priests, or were they priests more than filmmakers? Some people think that we were kind of freaks as priests doing this kind of work. It was very much, in my view, a different way of being priest. They saw stories in places that other people just neglected and couldn't see stories in. The Ryark Squad, Tuesday at 10.15 on RTE1. Well, one of the voices you heard in that trailer for the Ryark Squad, beginning next Tuesday at a quarter past ten on RTE1, belongs to our former head of religious broadcasting, Father Dermot McCarthy, and he's here now to share some of the memories. You're most welcome, Dermot. Thanks, Eileen. Um, it's often thought that Archbishop McQuaid was the founder or set it in train, the Ryark programme. Is that the case? That's a myth. John Charles McQuaid sent two priests, Des Forrestal and Joe Dunn, to New York in September 59. 
to learn something about this new medium of television, which was shortly to open here in, in Ireland. Now, I think the, the idea that Archbishop McQuaid had in mind was that he would have some people in the diocese who would be, who would be able to work in RTE and be able to be a kind of a conduit of you know, information back and forth between himself and RTE. You know, just that was really what was on his mind. But neither Joe nor Des saw that as being um, uh, either possible or valuable and decided that the best thing to do was to try to maintain an independence of RTE, but at the same time to make short programmes which might be usable for transmission on the new station. And these were shown to the man who was to become the controller of RTE, the new, the new station, Michael Barry. Barry saw them, liked them and said, yes, please make them, make more and we'll, we'll broadcast them. And that was the start of RIARC. What was the vision of the programme, if you like? Well, it was not very clear at the very start what the vision was. But as time went on, it set out to put on television, this new medium, the gospel at work in the broadest possible sense, and and the impact it can have on people's lives in different cultures, different countries, and here in Ireland, if you take it seriously. For example, Honesty at the Fair is a programme that many people of a certain age remember, shot in West Limerick, and Peter Lamas, who was a brilliant reporter, Father Peter, going to guys and say to, this, to these farmers, you have a beast here, but you know about the commandments, and the commandment there shall not lie. Would you always tell the truth about your beast? And the famous answer, Ah, now, Father, he said, you know, he said, you'd have to tell the truth to a neighbour, but a stranger would have to look after himself. <laughs> he <laughs> was so probably on. the equivalent of something like a Paddy O'Gorman today. He was. He was a, he was a wonderful reporter. And uh, he had a way of being able to extract from people in a gentle way, but at the same time firmly and compassionately all sorts of information. There were over 400 documentaries made between 1962 and 1995. Yeah, 400 documentaries in about 75 countries in all the continents. I wasn't in at the very, very start, but I joined it very early on uh, in 1965. So I was part of that whole team, and it was a most exciting project. And they were were very popular programmes, and they were highly acclaimed at the time. And we were lucky enough to win a few national and international awards. Now, as you say, you became involved in 1965 mm. and were probably too busy to think too much about at the time. But looking back, what would you say your highlights were? What were the programmes that most fascinated you that you worked on? Well, I think Night Flight to Uli, the one that we did in Biafra in 1968, was extremely powerful. It was the first time that a famine had been televised. And for the first time, starving children suffering from Kwashiorkor, with distended stomachs and bulbous eyes and stick-like arms and legs, were seen in the sitting rooms of the homes of Ireland. And people were shocked. And in fact, as a result of all that came in after the showing of that programme, that's when concern took off. There was the mother of the Kennedys, the one we did with Rose Kennedy, the first time she allowed a film crew into her home in Hyannisport. How that began was, it actually began in a tie, because I was sent to a tie in 1970. I was a bold boy. I did a programme that John Charles felt shouldn't have been done. And, uh, on? On nuns. <laughs> on the fact that Irish religious women were being prevented from implementing the findings of Vatican II. And uh, we were asking awkward questions. That's a long story. But anyway, I was asked to go to a tie, which is a great, which in fact I enjoyed thoroughly, as it turned out, the two years I spent there. But... While I was there, 
a 17-year-old girl, only daughter, of an elderly couple who already had three sons much older than this young girl. She was killed in a fall off a horse one Sunday afternoon. She was well known throughout the whole of Athai. Her name was Magella Timpson. Everybody loved her. There was a a meeting of the RAR team during the following week and I said, how about doing a programme that might help parents to cope with the tragic sudden death of a child? And then somebody rather dryly said, well, of course, we could try to go and talk to the woman who has lost not one but four children publicly and tragically. Rose Kennedy. Oh, we'd never get near her. But we did because... A friend of ours, Father Tom Stack, knew Eddie Delaney, the sculptor, whose brother was a parish priest in the parish in Florida near her winter home. And to make a long story short, we sent word to her, would she do it? And she said, yes, she would. And at the last minute, we got a cable saying, it's all off. Only one thing to do, go and see and ask herself. Anyway, I managed to persuade her to do it. And I told her about the girl in the thigh and said, can you tell us how you coped with four tragic deaths? And she did. She did, and she invited me to stay the weekend. Now, you mentioned the late Father Joe Dunn, and to coincide with this anniversary, his book, No Lines in the Hierarchy, has been reissued by Columba Press. Yes. Where did the title come from? Uh, in the early days of RARC, priests couldn't leave their diocese for, I think, longer than a week without getting permission from the bishop. So Joe dutifully wrote to Archbishop McQuaid and asked permission for the team to go to Kenya and finished it by saying, P.S., we'll bring you back a tiger skin for your study. And the answer came back from John Charles, go, John Charles. P.S., there are no tigers in Africa. <laughs> so later on, when Joe wrote his first book as a, sort of a, a memoir of, of, his early, of the early years of Riot, he called it No Tigers in Africa. Later on then, he wrote this second book, No Lions in the Hierarchy, and he wrote a third one called No Vipers in the Vatican. And when he died, Des Forrestal happened to be in Sligo talking to Bishop Christy Jones when the word came through. And uh, Bishop Jones remarked rather ruefully, I suppose he's already begun his fourth book, No Bishops in Heaven. Now, you wanted to quote from one of the scripts that Father Peter Lamas wrote for the Ryark program. Well, it was Peter Lamas spoke it, actually, but Des Forrestal wrote it. And in one of the early programmes called Down and Out in Dublin, which is actually going out also, Next week on, I think, Thursday night. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read you a small bit of the, of the, of the um, script that Des wrote. There are those that have nothing else, no home, no work, no income, no prospects of any kind. They're unemployed and unemployable. They're studied by sociologists, watched by police. They're condemned by the righteous and given alms by the soft-hearted. They're called by many names, tramps, hobos, vagabonds, beggars, down-and-outs. Avoided by their fellow citizens, moved along by the authorities, jeered at by children in the street. Everyone knows them to see, but scarcely anyone knows them to talk to or understands just how or why they have drifted into their present hopelessness. And in the week coming up to the budget, that's timely too. That's an extract from one of those classic Ryark episodes, Down and Out in Dublin, which will be shown on Thursday, the 6th of December. Then on the 13th, you can see Pain is the Price and the documentary The Ryark Squad on RT1 television next Tuesday night at a quarter past ten and the following Tuesday night as well. Father Dermot McCarthy, thank you for sharing those memories with us. Thank you, Eileen. Back now to Eastern Spirituality.
The word Amma means mother and it's the name used by a fascinating lady from India. Her charities called Embracing the World have helped the sick and needy in many lands but she's known throughout the world for her selfless love and compassion towards all beings expressed by hugging all who come to her. Recently she visited the National Show Centre in Dublin and producer Jerry McArdle went along to meet her. As he waited in the crowded and noisy arena, a woman who had come to experience the presence of Amma began unbidden to talk to him. It's just great to be able to just observe myself. I'm watching and then taking it all in here. Ironically, this time last Sunday, I was doing the counting for the local elections for Dublin Southwest, and um, a man that I go to meditation with on Tuesday told me about her in the previous two days. I had got milk up in this Indian store there on the Fonthill Road and saw her poster. And I thought, she's in Dublin, God bless us, if that's not enough signs. But literally speaking, where she is there now, over in that little section over there, that's where I was based last week. Is that the gentleman in the orange who will be yeah. doing the interpreting? Yes, that's right. That's really him, I need to get, get yes. through with my yes. mic, okay. yeah. He will only be able to answer some of the questions. Oh, I understand, yes, when yes. he wants to stop, he stops, yeah. I understand that, thank you. Ama, it's an honour to meet you. Can I ask you about when you were young, how you discovered this gift that you have? Mama says, uh, you know, as a little girl of seven or eight years old, I used to visit 60 houses every day to collect uh, food scraps for the cattle at my house. And during such uh, visits, I used to see the harder realities of life. Like in some houses they had enough to eat, in some other houses they, they did not have anything. And in some houses they had 10 or 12 children crying. The sick people, elderly people who, who were being discarded by their own children, sometimes I would even steal footsteps from, from my own house and give, give it away for these people. And I would bring the elderly people to my house, give them a bath. So uh, at one point I even wanted to commit suicide by jumping into fire. But then I realized that that was not the real purpose of life. My real purpose of life was to help people, to express love and compassion to the suffering. And then people also came to me to share their, uh, their sorrows and sufferings and I listened to them. And then I express my love by putting them in my shoulder or putting them in my lap and embracing them, wiping their tears. And then slowly it, uh, it unfolded into this, you know, what is happening today. Because our true nature is love and anyone can tap into that, uh, that uh, inner potential. Ahmed, do you believe that your gift comes from God or from a divine source? <laughs> The real source is within. You know, it's like a, like a pot that's being immersed in, in, in water. So there is water inside and outside. Likewise, pure consciousness is both within and without. And it's everywhere, it's in everyone. I'm very much aware that, you know, people want to be near Ama and I'm taking up a lot of her time. Okay, thank you. And so I was fast-tracked through the vast queue to be hugged by Ama. And afterwards, I recorded my reaction. Well, I've just had my hug, and it was a, an extraordinary experience. Uh, 
I don't know what I don't know what to say and I don't know what way I feel about it, but um there is a power that comes from it, there's no doubt about that. There certainly is. That report from Jerry McCardle, who I think is still a little mystified by his experience, and we'll put details about AMA on our website. Well, that's our programme for this week. Your comments to us are always welcome. You can email thegodslot at rte.ie, phone us at 01-208-2039 or write to us at The Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. We'll be back next Friday at the same time. August Gajishin, Slán Ispanacht. Because I gotta have faith. Ooh, I gotta have faith. 